Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness. And about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself, and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in my struggles. This was the reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Hear the word of the Lord. Amen. So we are, um, we are back in our series this morning, what we're calling uh, Living by Dying. And that's a strange concept, right? Living by dying. Life that comes out of death. It's like if I, it's like if I were to say it's, it's, um, it's like if I were to, to title it Eating by Starving, Right? Or, or, um, or waking by sleeping, or running by laying down. Like, it doesn't make any sense, right, to call it something like living by dying. It's a paradox. From our view, like, if we were to, just taking God out of the account for the moment, just to ex- explore this, this question... If you were to take God out of the account, all of life is this road that circles and turns inward upon itself, frustratingly, confusingly. And death is, is in a way, the only way out of this 
frustrating cycle, endlessly pursuing something and finding ourselves back at square one all the time. For most of us, the only way that we die is by living. Does that make sense? I'll explain that. We live, so we live our life. You have a set period of life on this earth, right? All of us do. We live for a certain amount of time, and then what happens? Death. And so what do we do? The only way that we die is by what? Expiring all of the life that we have left to live. So for most of us, we, we don't take the, uh, this idea of living by dying. We, sit, we actually spend more of the, our time dying by living. We're all heading towards death inevitably, ultimately, like in every pursuit. We're going to die, and so what do we think? We might as well just live it up until it's over, and then there's nothing left, and then we're dead, right? We live the paradox all the time, but just in the other way around. We, we, we flip that upon our head. And, 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 and what we find is that this constant search, this idea of dying by living, centers all around what the book of Ecclesiastes has this term for it, and it's this term, hevel. And hevel is this vapor, this, this puff of smoke, this, this wisp that tantalizes, that, that tempts us to grab it, to contain it, to understand it, to preserve it somehow. But it's impossible. It's this momentary, fragile thing. And actually, the Psalms use this word hevel not to refer to things that humans can grab onto. The book of Psalms actually refers to hevel as us. The psalmist calls humans Hevel. Psalm 144 says, Man is like Hevel, a vapor. His days are like a passing shadow. Take a deep breath in. And breathe out. In the grand scope of history, in the, the turning of the earth, in the cycle of years and generations, In the scope of all human history, your life amounts to that. And that's it. Now here's where the beauty of all of this talk about the fragility of life and the certainty of death comes in. All of us die a little more every day. Every day is, a, is an inch closer to death, and, and we call it life. We call it life, but it's actually just dying. We're still progressing closer and closer. We call it living, this, this short, elusive search for meaning and value and purpose and happiness. We spend our lives trying to escape the, the constraints of a created condition, trying to escape the fact that we will not live forever. Our days and our bodies and our minds, they are limited. There is nothing on this earth that you can gain or experience or achieve that will reverse this condition for you. 
Have I satisfactorily bummed you out by now? Most of you are like, get me out of here, right? There is nothing that you can gain that will reverse the condition of dying. But there is something you can lose. There is something you can lose that will reverse this condition. Only by dying can you live. Only by losing can you gain. Only by surrendering can you find freedom. And so we are taking this journey through the confusing and frustrating and and bummer book of Ecclesiastes. I tried to show mercy and do it in five weeks instead of 12. But journeying through this this book through time and space to discover just exactly what must be lost, what must be surrendered, what must die in us in order that we might live. And so only by, by uncovering every rock that turns out to be pebble will we discover the firm foundation that we actually need to stand. So this morning, we are going to reach the first stop on our journey. And so every stop, we're going to uncover a different method and manner through which, like humans throughout history, have have sought to find acceptance and value. And, And every encounter is different. Do we find our salvation in experience, in the emotions and and sensations that we feel? What about wealth? Uh, the properties and the affluence that we have and we hold? Or can we be saved through achievement, the the accomplishments and the authority that we attain? And and as I mentioned, each one of those, I I have no doubt that, that, that that we each pause for just a moment on one of those things. Because everyone has experienced a moment of validation in some way through one of these encounters that leaves us wanting more. And if you have and you're feeling super guilty about that fact, let me assure you, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why we pause on those things and as we have encountered those in our own lives, we go, man, that was good. I wish I had more of what that offered me. There's a reason why. And the reason why is that that you and I are confronted with meaning and purpose as we feel and hold and touch and work because that is the way that God intended it. All of creation, all the relationships, all all of what this world has to offer was made to be used and enjoyed and employed for our good and for our benefit. The world is not meant to be poisonous to the touch or a work, a tool of evil, but is created to be good and useful and satisfying. So the question that we're we're confronted with, the paradox, though, is that why do good feelings, good experiences, good encounters suddenly seem empty to us? 
Why, why does simple delight turn into utter frustration? And the truth is that while, while God has always meant for the created world to work in, in beautiful tandem and cooperation with humanity, what we find ourselves doing is, is using that and abusing creation to serve some twisted purpose. We strain to bend the will of the world and everything it encompasses toward ourselves and our prerogatives. And so everything becomes hevel. This, this vapor that try as we might to assign it an otherworldly and eternal meaning. It slips through our grasps and, and confuses Founds us. Try as hard as we might to assign it this value. It will frustrate us as we search for something that will redeem, something that will save us. So the teacher, as we're calling him, he's going to make three stops on this journey, and, and each of those stops re- represents three different types of pursuit. Pleasure, possessions, and power. Today we're talking about pleasure. All right? So here we go. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Obviously, it's going to be up here on the screen, though, and you are uh, welcome to to read along. Verse 1 I said to myself, Go ahead. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. So, look, I I, I just found this fascinating, really quick. The teacher, he says, I said to myself, go ahead, me. Test me with pleasure. Like, he's he's having this, like, internal internal conversation with his, his own person. Like, and I'd just love to be a fly on the wall to see this. Like him walking around going like, okay, okay, me, I will test me with pleasure and see if I succeed and I pass my own test. Like, what is going on here? It's just, a, it's just kind of a funny situation to be found in, but I guess that he can pull it off, right? So the teacher here, he's going to test himself with pleasure, and he's going to list these seven different Pleasures that that play to our emotions and and provide this enjoyable sensory experience. And so he's going to talk about uh, humor, alcohol, art, nature, music, sex, and affirmation. So you're like, man, this is the good Sunday to be on, right? Um, Talk about all these things today. Um, and, And I will say, like, even just listing those things, most of us, if not all of us, have, have encountered these things in some way that, that, that we have enjoyed, that, that feels good to us. And the point is to not, like, we have a tendency to, to anything that starts to feel good, we go, that's really, oh, nope, we're not allowed to feel good here. Like, we're, we're supposed to feel bad all the time about everything, and so don't you dare feel good about about one of those things because that means that somehow you're also bad. That's a paradox within you. There's a tension that's going on. 
Our goal is to help unravel that a little bit today, right? Again, these, these seven pleasures are, are they're fundamentally designed to elicit a, a pleasurable, satisfying feeling within yourself, whether that, that feeling is, is happiness or calm or excitement. So I have to say right here that pleasure in and of itself is not evil or guilt-inducing or immoral. Pleasure is a divine gift given to you for your good. Feeling and emotion and, and sensory experience are not wrong. But what you will find is that when they stop becoming gifts and they start becoming pursuits, we start to miss the mark. What we happen is when we use good gifts as, as a pursuit to manufacture a reality that is different from that of the present, when we seek to change the way things are to, to, uh, to the way things could be because the way things are is sad and depressing and lonely and full of doubt, we, 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 we launch ourselves into this very temporary and uncertain aim, goal. The temptation with every gift on this earth is to twist it and skew it and turn it into something earned, experienced, achieved. Humans are notorious for turning something given into something that must be gained. And this is nothing new. Like if you were to, uh, to open up your Bibles and go all the way to the beginning... Uh, Genesis chapter 1, and you just open up your Bibles right at the beginning, like what happens there? God, is, God creates man and, and woman, and he sets them in this garden, this beautiful space with food and color and life and light. And it's this paradise, and then inside this paradise, he tells them, take and eat and enjoy. Don't take from that one tree in, right over there, but... The rest of it, just enjoy the life that I have given you. Experience it. But what happens? They eat from the tree. There is this like seed of doubt that, that, that creeps in. This voice that, that tells them that human life that God just explained to you, it's not enough. All of this life that you see before you, that's not enough. You can't be satisfied by what has been given. You must gain. You must take from the tree of knowing good and evil and, and judging for yourself so that you can ascend to your place, not as God's image bearer, but as God's yourself. If you want to live Forever, if you want to have all of the goodness, you must take for yourself and gain your place. So they do. 
they turn their backs on the giver and they take for themselves. And this gift of life that has been set before them freely to enjoy turns into this endless pursuit, this search for something to be gained that will satisfy. Something that was already preconditioned to just enjoy, that was given to be satisfied, becomes the thing that must be the the end-all object of satisfaction. Instead of being satisfied in the giver, we feel like we must be satisfied with the gift. The philosopher Blaise Pascal writes, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, to be happy. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So how do you know if you're doing this? How do you know if you, are, if you are turning something that has been given into something that must be gained? At what point does pleasure go from good and valuable to, to hevel, to this vapor we, we need, this object of ultimate meaning? The teacher has a theory. He has a theory. In his search for meaning, he says to himself, teacher, Teacher says to the teacher, teacher, again, it's a weird, a weird conversation. I know that when I have these sensory experiences, I feel really good. Something within me says, this is right. You need to go find out, what if I can find meaning in these experiences? Go and, and just, you need to test this. So go and just indulge yourself silly with all of it. So he does. He goes and he goes on this journey to test pleasure, to indulge to the fullest extent. And like a good scientist, he takes notes. So what does the scientist say about his experience? Verse 2. I said about laughter, it is madness. And about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the last few days of their life. I increased my achievements. I built houses and and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. Now picture, if you will, the teacher standing in this this long hallway. And there's something at the end, but it's, it's a little bit farther off in the distance. 
But to his, his right, his, his right, there are four doors. And to his left, there are another three doors. Each one promises something good, something enjoyable, something wonderful. Wisdom remains with him. Now, wisdom in, in the Bible is personified as this sage. This sage who, who is, is directing uh, toward people to the good order of God, revealing the ways of God and showing the true path that, that, that will find the way that God always meant for things. Any, anybody you know in the Bible that also does that? Any, any, any other representative of all the things that are the goodness of God that points and direct, that reveals fully the person of God? Aiming us and going, also called the word sometimes. Is that interesting? Just think about that for a little bit. And folly, now, so that's wisdom personified as this sage. And the sage is walking along with the teacher into every door. And folly is personified in the Bible as this, this uh, wild woman who is, is, is just like dropping rose petals leading into her home and calling out to the door, hey, hey, you, you walking by. My husband's out of town on business. Why don't you come in and we'll have some fun? That's how folly is represented in Scripture. And so what you have is this, this experience where, where the teacher goes, all right, there is a woman at all not seven of these doors. Wisdom, you and I, we're going to walk together, and we're going to walk into these doors. You're going to be my eyes and ears as I experience whatever's going on behind this door. That's essentially the story that we're, we're seeing playing out right now. So in this, in this story, he's walking through the folly's door, wisdom at his side, ready to experience every passion of the mind and body that folly has to offer. So first, he encounters humor. Humor, this experience of laughter and brazen joy. And I, I think the teacher starts out here because, I, I don't know, there's something, there's something so simple about this. If you're going to talk about pleasure, what, what's like the simplest pleasure you can come up with? Just laughter and just humor and joy. There's, there's fair, it's fairly uncomplicated when you put it down. Laughter is this like carefree expression of our happiness. It's this instantaneous thing. You can either break out in a fit of it without warning, and, and it can immediately change your disposition. And you know when somebody's faking a laugh, right? Like, when you laugh, like a lot of times when you guys laugh and I'm trying to say something, I know that you're faking it, right? Because I'm like, thank you for the sympathy, the pity laughs. I know you don't mean it, but it does help me get through the message faster, so I appreciate that, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's this instantaneous expression of, of joy that immediately can shift your disposition. Humor can break sorrowful and melancholy spirits. It can unite two people in friendship. It can create lasting memories when we revisit in our minds. And it can, it can reignite with, with this, this vivid imagery, times and places that where, where happiness just filled us. 
Think for a moment just in your own life where you were just overcome with laughter. Maybe it was a joke that you heard. Maybe it was a good time with friends. And, and, and when you think about that, like, what happens when you do that? You immediately break out into laughter, even just thinking about the laughter that you experienced. You'd be like, man, that was funny. And I do start laughing, right? It's like this instinctive thing within us that, that takes us back, that, that, that is, is triggered in our memories and connected deeply with experiences of our life. It immediately changes our countenance just by revisiting those things. So the teacher says maybe that's what life is all about. Maybe life is just about, it's one big long joke. (laughs) Maybe it's all about the humor, right? Maybe it's just about this ability to laugh and find and find uh, joy and amusement in any situation. And, and we could argue, certainly, there is meaning in that. Certainly there is. But is it the ultimate meaning? Is amusement and, and hilarity the final word in life, the primary goal and purpose? Is that where we find wholeness and completeness as human beings? And as much as As I look back to times of laughter and joy, and I desperately want to say yes, also that would end our journey a lot quicker, I have to conclude that humor is hevel. It's a vapor. Because as good and and pleasant a feeling as it is, humor is a blessing for a specific time and place. But it is a curse for others. Laughter is a a defense mechanism that we use sometimes to deflect and avoid the truth of things. And when humor fades and when the smile wears off, what remains? Reality. Truth. The reality of death, the reality of loneliness. Humor fails to save us. I mean, humor, yes, it can bind us into, into long-lasting and fruitful relationships, right? Like, like I, 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 I can look back on relationships that I've had, and I may not have as much connection with them anymore, but, but there have been times when I've, I've, uh, I've uh, visited someone after I haven't seen in 10 years, and some sort of inside joke that we had together immediately bonds us together again. I'm like, that was funny. And we're like, back to 10 years ago, right? It's, it's got this amazing power. But I've also found that humor has destroyed some of those very same relationships. Because maybe the jokes were at my expense. Or maybe the jokes were at the expense of my friend. Why is it that we take a pleasure, a gift, as simple as humor, and we use it in this way? We use it to exploit people. We use it to damage People, we use it to hurt people. Just as there is a wrong time and a place for laughter, there is also a deadly misuse where we use humor for acceptance and worth at the expense of others. And we set ourselves up to be attacked and destroyed in the same way. And I think that's why ultimately the teacher calls laughter madness. Because it's this foolish game that we play to put our stock and our value wholly in our wit. Someday that wit will dull. Someday the stories will fade. 
humor will fail to save. So uh, if not humor, what about alcohol? What about alcohol? Wine and beer are these beverages that are, they're natural somewhat beverages, um, and, and as natural as any drink or food that we consume. And, and so for just this moment, separate the impulse to dismiss the pleasure of, of alcohol as simply a mood-altering substance and consider the unique art and, and, and craft of wineries and breweries. They put a lot of good time and effort into trying to create something that tastes good and is enjoyable. Have you ever experienced like, or seen or witnessed the, the community that, that joins around the social pub? Like there is a unifying factor that happens. I have, I have seen pers- like firsthand, um, I have seen church leaders who have bonded together over a bottle of wine, not because they drank themselves to unconsciousness, not to, not to experience it for the effects as if that is the only way that community will happen, but they come because it's uh, uh, this glass of maybe good-tasting wine created a context for community and commonality and conversation. What it did is it introduced them not just as co-workers, as ministry partners, but as friends. As I have gotten older, uh, I have come to enjoy the, 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 the taste of a good wine as much as you might in, experience a good steak or, um, or, or, a, or a good dessert. Because it, it's meant to be a satisfying flavor and taste. I get the idea of enjoying good fruit and, and sharing it with others in the name of friendship and community. Now, is that specifically what he is talking about? No. Again, do we use alcohol as the end all? I have to have alcohol to have meaning and value and purpose. I can't have community without alcohol. It becomes the end all. The thing that was, was meant to be a gift that becomes a gain. Something I have to gain in order to give me what I need. There's another pleasure that often happens, and that is um, the, the pleasure that actually the teacher experiences here, right? He not only cheers his body with wine, but he also lays hold of folly. You know what that means? He gets drunk. The teacher, in the experience to, to understand everything, every type of pleasure the world has to offer, scientifically gets drunk and records what happened so that he can see if getting drunk is the end of all meaning and purpose and value in this world. I, do you guys get, I mean, it's kind of funny. I, well, okay, let's see if this works, right? Let's just try it. Like, I, please don't, let's not read this and go, well, I guess I have to do that too, right? Let's not, let's not take that word, but let's, let's allow his journey to, to be something that we, we learn from his experiences, right? And not have to experience from ourselves, right? But, but what, he, what he's doing is he is saying, what if I were to experience all of the effects of alcohol, not just the taste of it, not just the enjoyment of it, but all the effects? 
if I use it? Why do this? Why intentionally get drunk in this way? He says why. He says, I have witnessed people who, who blessed with the same rational minds and mental faculties as I do, they are spending inordinate amounts of time under the spell of wine, and they seem happy about it. At least they appear to be enjoying themselves. But the pleasure of alcohol becomes a vapor because at some point you must awaken from the state of intoxication and face your friends, your workplace, and your family as they really are. No barricades, no facades. And try as you might to use alcohol as an escape or a change agent. And contrary to the image portrayed by every beer commercial ever, a meaningful life does not arise from our consumption of it or even our overconsumption of it. The bar still closes at 2 p.m. And you must find your way home on your own. The relationships that you make while enjoying food and drink only go so far and so deep once the plates stop passing and the wine stops flowing, at some point, something more must drive your community forward. At some point, you will wonder if wasting your brain and your liver is all there is to life. So alcohol also fails to say. So what about, what about art and nature and music? What about art, nature, and music? So the teacher, he's going to turn from, from the pleasures of the stomach to the pleasures of the mind, to the eyes and the ears. He, he creates gardens and parks. He establishes forests and livestock. He gathers singers and, and musicians. It says, will this work? And art and nature and music, these, these reveal a, a different kind of pleasure. There is this, this intensely powerful stirring up of our emotions that wells up inside of a person when he or she encounters a, a work of art, whether it is natural or it is made by man. And it's almost hard to explain because it's, it's so different for everyone. We each encounter these works of art in, in different types of ways. Like, there have been times when I've heard, heard a, a piece of classical music that, that brings me to tears. And I just enjoy hearing, like, there's the, there's the moment where it just crescendos and I'm just overcome by the emotion. Now, at the same time, I can go to a rock concert and I can hear the bass thumping out of my chest and I get a different kind of human experience. Also very enjoyable. Not quite moved to tears, but I'm moved to jump. It still, it still evokes joy and life and, and, and passion within me. Um, and, and, and you have this, so, so there's, there's art, but then you might maybe turn and, and you, you look away from it all and, and you, you, you see mountains and you see forests and you see valleys and you see rivers and, and waterfalls. And, and you are struck dumb by the sheer vastness of it all and, and the power of it all. And, and, and you realize how small you are in, compassion, in, in comparison to just the glorious effects that nature can have on our emotions. 
And then you can turn still further and, and, and you, you return back to civilization and you see, you see these works of architecture and, and just um, that have stood the test of time and, and, and people who see these and, and are inspired and they write and, and poetry and song and, 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 and literature and just reflecting on, on the skills of those things. Or, or, or maybe you watch a, a movie that has... Um, all sorts of different emotional directions of joy and, and fear and sadness and, 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 and you're just in awe of the skill of, of an experienced director or this group of actors and actresses. Art and nature and music, they move us in these powerful ways and they evoke like sudden and magnificent pleasures within us. And and. And, and art and music can even be a way to connect with creation as we become the creators ourselves. It's not just about reflecting on what has been done. It's also about our ability to create and craft ourselves. We find joy and pleasure and, 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 and love in doing those things. On the other hand, what I've noticed is that over time, the more I have... Uh, experienced art and music and nature, the more I also become more of a perfectionist when it comes to it, more of a critic. I struggle a little bit more. I love some of that music. Like, I've heard some beautiful classical music, and at first, in awe and love it, and then the more I listen to it, I go, that person was a little bit sharp on that note. Oh, man, they didn't quite hit that the way they were supposed to man, the bass has totally missed a, a beat. Shoot. I think about these songs that I wrote in the past, uh, and I, at first, when I first wrote them, I'm like, man, I love creating music. I love writing this stuff. I love playing it. Uh, I love singing it and, and doing it. Now I look back at the songs, I'm like, who wrote, why did I write that? That was awful. Like, I was a bad songwriter. You're just, I don't know what I'm, I clearly didn't know what I was doing in the moment. I'm like, this is amazing. And now I'm like, I don't want anybody to ever see this, ever come to the light of day. And, um, like we, we become uh, our own worst critics in that, in that way. Have you ever noticed that a movie that maybe you, you brought tears to your eye? I remember watching this one movie, and I'm like, I love this movie. This is my favorite movie ever. I'm going to buy it. And I bought it, and I watched it 10,000 times. And by the 10,000th time, I never cried again. I just wasn't as interested in it anymore. The story lost its flavor. The, the moment had stopped reaching its crescendo of, of emotional, emotional joy and just became another movie that I had. A movie I fell asleep to sometimes. What about nature? I mean, now, hold on. Let's, we can talk about our own creations, our human creations, but what about nature? You can't say anything bad about nature. What about that majestic forest that we love? It's great until it's on fire. That forest that became a thing of beauty and life and the smells of wonderment and awe suddenly changes when fire runs through it and ravages it. And you look at that and go, that's a tinderbox waiting to blow. It changes our perspective. A waterfall can be beautiful unless you're in the middle of it, careening towards the edge. It's 
suddenly we're not in awe and inspired by it anymore. We want to get as far away from it as possible. Nature has the capacity to both awe us and, and enrage us and, and scare us at the same time. All of them leave us eternally with unease and, and, and without contentment. They, too, fail to save us. Two more. How are you guys doing? Good? Okay, number... Great, because we're coming to sex. So, which we're all waiting for. Um, all right, so, so he is, so, so far the teacher has experienced five things, and he's gone from thing to thing, and he's like, none of these work. What about sex, the, the, the pleasure of romance and human intimacy? Now, I will say I am a married man, and as a participant in a monogamous relationship, I can say from personal experience, as a pastor, no less, on record, for you all to come back and listen to a million times later, that sex is a great thing. It is now on the internet forever, okay? <laughs> sex is a great thing. There is, is nothing else that I can think of that exposes your vulnerabilities to the highest level and yet connects you to another person with such spiritual and emotional intimacy and also provides an individual response of physical enjoyment. Sex is this special pleasure intended to unite two people as nothing else can. Now, is that the type of experience that the teacher is talking about here? No. Not even close. The teacher, when he's talking about sex, he is not talking about the oneness that comes from a, a marital relationship. He is talking about hedonistic, un, unending sexual fulfillment. Just, just total, outside of the limits or boundaries of marriage between one man and one woman, just, just letting it all go. Coming into folly, not wisdom. Not wisdom's version of sex, folly's version of sex. Now remember, who is this teacher? Or at least who is this teacher ought, is supposed to evoke? He is meant to draw us and our attention to the man Solomon. Solomon. Uh, he is described as a son of David, a king. And, and, and he is, and so you're like, who is the son of David, a king? Solomon. Who is, and so who is Solomon? What does, what does 1 Kings describe him as? And, and go back and, and read 1 Kings, uh, like chapter 4 is a good place to begin. Solomon is a rock star in Israel's history. A rock star, okay? This guy has done everything you can do. All right, um, the, the, he had this amount of money and art and culture that was streaming into Israel. It was unprecedented. Like the nation of Israel became the hot spot for culture in the day. Um, and, and the annals of Israel's history say Solomon was wiser than all other men, and his fame was in all of the surrounding nations. Like every nation knew this guy was smart. The Bible says so, uh, God gave Solomon a breadth 
of mind like the sands of the seashore. And not only that, in addition to art and culture and and money and wealth and fame and, and wisdom, Solomon was a playboy. First Kings records he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand women. I did the math. The thousand women whose sole role in life was to please Solomon and grant him every sexual favor he could desire. So when, when, when the teacher says, I experienced the delight of the sons of man, that extreme sense of, 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 of pleasure of sexual intimacy to the nth degree is what he is talking about. That's the idea that's going on. So his line of, of reasoning with sex and, and, and with, with really all of the pleasures is, is this. He says, so here's the deal. Me, because remember he's talking to himself. Here's the deal, me. When I experience the intimacy of sex in a monogamous relationship, intimacy with, with one woman whom I have committed to, whom I have fostered, uh, uh, promised my life to, who I have I've covenanted with, in lasting relationship, like that is that is amazing. So, how much better and more fulfilling must it be with a thousand women? If the taste of wine brings me relaxation and a release from the stress of life and work and hardship, how much more released will I be if I drink all of the wine? If I am totally and, and constantly inebriated and intoxicated. Is the nth degree of, of, of human physical gratification the end of all life and meaning and value and purpose? Is that what it means to be human? But the teacher comes up empty once again. We know this. We know this. As much as you might think, oh, a thousand women, that must be better than one, right? See, the thing is, sex in our day and age is marketed constantly as the ultimate desire for men, right? Sex is marketed all the time today as the ultimate desire for men. And so women sell their bodies and destroy their self-image because that is what culture has accepted as fulfillment. Men use women as objects to leer at and use and abuse. And if the pornography industry is any indication, that movement is not slowing down anytime soon. Sex quickly becomes the savior and the end all. I ran into far too many conversations with young Christian men who who constantly alluded to the burning in your loins passage in the Bible as the thing that they needed. That's why I have to get married now. I'm burning in my loins. And I'm like, it's not going to fix. Like, if that's your goal to get married, it's a bad reason to get married. Because in that 
what, what, what is going on in those, in those conversations is that sex becomes the end all. When I finally experience sexual gratification, I will be a better person. I will experience full humanity. So I have to get married. And oh yeah, I really like the girl. It becomes almost secondary to the truth. Sex quickly becomes the savior. But, but just for a moment, like if you will, go ahead and turn on your local pop station for about an hour, and, and you are going to find among all of the songs that are glorifying sexual escapades and one-night stands, you'll also hear a lot of hurt and loss and emptiness resulting from the same intimate encounter. Because sex is this amazing created pleasure that unites two individuals in body and spirit. And so the act of, of prolific hedonistic sex, like that which the teacher and, and even our present day celebrities participate in, it's like splitting your soul up into a thousand different pieces and, in, and eventually you are left with nothing else to give. Nothing that can fully Please you. Sex fails to save. So there's one last pursuit that the teacher mentions here, and that is the pleasure of affirmation. He says, all of, after all of these things, I became great, and, and I surpassed all that were before me in Jerusalem. So what he is describing there is something that all of us pursue. This, this pleasure of being judged by all around us. If I can't find the thing that is, is, uh, is permanent and lasting in meaning in me, maybe I can find it in what others think about me. Affirmation is glory and fame and pats on the back and shouts of well done. Affirmation is the pleasure of encouragement and self-esteem. And, and, and I will say again, it's a good gift. All of these things are good gifts that when we seek to turn them into selfish gains, we lose the intent and the order of which God has always meant for them to be. Affirmation is a good thing. It is a creation of God meant to show humanity the truth of what it was always meant to be. When we are affirmed as made in the image of the creator himself, affirmation is a good thing. Would you agree? To be affirmed as being made in the image of God, to have a created dignity that comes from being human. Because you were made intentionally and specifically and carefully and lovingly. That is a good thing. It is a valuable thing to be affirmed. But affirmation becomes heavy when we become addicted to it. When we crave it everywhere. And, and, and so what we find even in our culture today is that affirmation gets caricatured to this like unhealthy degree. And similarly, criticism to an unhealthy degree. They become amplified in our culture. So if you were looking to social media, like, that would support this, right? When you post a picture of you or your family or, or something you did, what do you get? You get likes. You get stars. You get plus ones. 
You get swipes to the left or to the right. Millions of people right now are posting billions of things representing their ideas about themselves and putting them up to be judged instantly by others. Social media is the billion-dollar industry of affirmation. I was listening to a podcast recently, and, uh, and the host was interviewing these three high school girls about their social media presence um, and what it's all about and why they put so much of their time into it. And as a person who is not a, a uh, high school girl, I can't say I've had the same experience. And many of you haven't had the same experience yourselves. So what I want actually you to do is just listen to them firsthand what this whole pursuit is all about. So let's go ahead and listen. Ella and Julia and Jane say that usually they'll get 130 to 150 likes for any selfie they put up, and anywhere between 30 and 50 comments, which is a good response. And overwhelmingly, these comments are the super positive, you're so pretty, OMG, you're so cute kind. And a lot of it is heartfelt. Girls just trying to be good friends to each other. When you see your friend put herself out there, it's nice to tell her she's pretty. Can I yeah. ask, like, like, does it work? Because, like, you know, when you're getting over 100 likes and comments and things like that like you know you know a lot of it is just road right a lot of people are just like they see a thing and they just yeah, yeah. Automatically, you're scrolling whatever. through well, because, yeah, it's that's mindless how I know. that's it, how it's yeah. mindless and so since it's mindless does it still work does it make you feel good yes um actually if i get a comment from someone i care about i think it makes me feel good like it lifts me up but like a lot of it is just scrolling. But a too. lot of it's just like I literally, I literally just scroll through like my Instagram feed and I just like like click like double tap yeah. and like it doesn't. I like everything on my. Phone. You know, like it just doesn't like, and that's what people are doing to your photo. But like, it still makes you feel good because you're getting all these likes. Yeah, I know, but, but when you think about it, it's so strange because you know how superficial it is, it is. and yet you and know, yet, but yeah, yet, you know yeah. that you're doing it to other people, but and yet and still, other people are doing it to you. But and it still feels like something though. Like, it does make you feel good. You're like, oh, I'm getting all these comments. Like, people like my photo. They think I'm pretty. Like, like they're saying that you're pretty. And, like, if someone comes up to you and says you're pretty, like, you're obviously going to be like, thank you. Like, you, if it makes you feel good because it just does. Like, it, that's, like, human nature. Like, you're going to feel good. This is really not so different from anybody's life on social media. When I tweet something and a friend favorites it and another friend retweets it with a funny comment, that is totally them saying to me, you're so pretty, just in a more adult kind of way. And it feels nice. All three of these girls told me they don't need 50 people telling them that they're pretty all the time. But, you know, it's there for the taking. It's like free candy. Why not? Do you feel like there's this, this is a situation where, like, girls are so judged all the time on how they look, and this is, this is a way to counteract that by you guys saying to each other, like, you're pretty, you're pretty. Well, no, it just gives more opportunities for people to judge. Yeah, they're not going to. Photo of yourself is putting yourself out there. They're not going to do it on social media, obviously, because you will see it. But they'll do it behind your back. When a girl posts an unflattering selfie or just a selfie that makes her look uncool, other girls will take screenshots to save the image and gossip about it later. It happens all the time. And so, even though the old hands are posting selfies, they've been posting since sixth grade. It can be nervous making to post one, so they take precautions. We all ask oh, people before we post it, like, 
yeah. send in like a group chat or like send to your friends like should I post this do I look pretty and they say like all the same stuff that they would say in a comment like oh my god yes post it like you're so pretty you're so perfect so like and so it'll be like you run it by like four or five friends yeah like if I send it to my friends I'm not nervous about it because then I, I have okay. like these Jane looks at her phone there's a message like someone just texted in a giant group chat go like my photo on Instagram it just shows that yeah. it happens every single happens second. every second it happens all the time yep. I got it too yeah I have to say, like, oh my god, this is such a job. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like I'm a so, like I I'm I'm a brand, and I am like you're trying to promote brand. yourself. I'm the director, the per- I'm, yeah, and you're the product. And you're I'm definitely the... trying to promote yourself. To yeah. stay relevant, you have to you have to you have to relevance work hard. Relevance is work. a big term right now. Yeah, are you guys relevant? I'm, I'm in so middle relevant. school, in middle school, we were definitely really relevant. We were everyone so relevant. because everything was established. But now, in the beginning yeah. of high school. You can't really tell who's relevant. Yeah. Yeah. And what does relevant mean? Relevant means that people care about what you're posting on Instagram. People want to want to know what you're doing. People will open your Snapchat stories. They're only three months into high school. So there is a lot at stake right now. One of my best friends posts um, a selfie. Maybe this isn't like healthy, but... I might go through like the comments and see who she's like really good friends with just because we're in high school and there's that sense of jealousy between everyone. Do you have people who you're jealous of? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely would. I go through like the comments that people see, like that people say, and like I see what other people have said yeah. to other people just to see like the whole, like the whole social like map. Looking, mapping out your social world, seeing who's with who, who's hanging out with who, who is best friends with who. If you didn't have it, like, I feel like I'd be missing so much. It would just... Because you wouldn't see yeah. what other people were saying. A lot goes on. Well, no, that's, I feel like, the thing that I'm understanding from this conversation is, like, it's actually, like, you're getting a picture of your entire social world and who's up and who's down and who's close to who. And yeah. it's, like, yeah. you're getting a diagram of where everybody stands with everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Like, definitely. As it definitely. changes in real time every day, every 10 yeah. minutes. Yeah, everyone can see it. It's crazy. You see these comments, you screenshot them, you show them to your friends. Yeah, at school, I will like, screenshot things and be like, look what she said, yeah. look what she said. Like, even if it's I didn't fu- know that these funny. people were close. When did this happen? This is the main thing they get from Instagram, they say. After all, each of them only posts a couple pictures a week. Not that much of their time on Instagram is being told they're pretty. Most of it is this dissecting and calibrating the minutiae of the social diagram. As I as I listen to that, and later on they even they continue to talk about how um, some of them will even say like there's now there's like degrees of of saying you're you're pretty. So one one might say you're so pretty, and the other one, and then the next person says like you're so pretty, I'm going to kill you. That's you're really pretty, right? So like uh, it's it's this whole world that that uh, to listen to you go wow this is intense. This isn't just like affirmation. This is like, this is like your whole life says, I have to. And you're in this, again, endless cycle. What happens when you stop posting pictures? What happens when you stop posting interesting tidbits of contact or information? What happens when people stop liking everything that you do? You're no longer relevant anymore. You're no longer worth following or, or being liked or and and so what it, what what you what you run into is this constant pursuit of having to pursue and we look at that and, and you might even hear that and go oh that doesn't sound like reality oh it so is it so is our reality to be affirmed in who you are man it's a good feeling like you said 
Well, what happens when it dries up? What happens when selfies are no longer liked? What happens when you run out of interesting things to post about? Will you run into the same weariness that the teacher does? Spending all of your energy and emotion for something that you know doesn't last. What happens when your five minutes of fame comes to an end? Affirmation fails to save. So, at the end of all of this searching and the constant grasping and pursuits, seven doors have been opened, each one a new and different folly, promising to have something lasting, something pure, something that means that it is the the fullness of your humanity behind that door, and each one is left behind, emptier than you were before. So the teacher concludes with this. After all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse to myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was the reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be heaven, a vapor, a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. The mystery of all things pleasure is this. They are great gifts, but they are bad gains. All of the sensory experiences of life are created for a time and a place and a season and a created order to be enjoyed as exactly as they have been given. And the beauty of all these gifts is that when they are enjoyed as they have been given to enjoy, they reflect the good and gracious nature of the giver. But the issue arises when we take the good gifts and they become the end to themselves. When we only go as far as the gift and we do not look up and see who gave them. They become the thing that must be grasped that must be gathered, that must be gained, and they somehow hold the key within themselves to happiness. We turn our back on the giver, and we find our hope in the things that might be gained instead. Here's what the paradox of pleasure is meant to do. As we experience everything that that could be gained under the sun, and we find out they cannot be gained under the sun. The things that are set before our eyes stop to satisfy us. The things sounding into our ears do not rest us. And the reason, because, because all of it by itself is weariness. We are exposed to a a kind of cynicism within it that that these things too will also die just like we will die. Instead of looking to the temporary gift, the mortal gift, we are being invited to look up towards the eternal giver instead. Not to the gift, but to the giver. Because when we look at the giver, the gifts become more valuable. 
because we're looking at them in light of who gave them. But when the gift becomes the end all of itself, when our eyes are fixated on the trinket, and we interpret that as the treasure, we will quickly lose sight, taste, sensation. It will dull us, and we will be left. The pleasures of this world are something that you are absolutely meant to experience. But no matter how much you indulge, you will not find the real wholeness that you are yearning for. Instead, the pleasure we experience leaves us hungering for more. But for what? What is it that we are ultimately hungering for, the teacher argues? And I would love to tell you now, but we have two more steps along the way, two more stops in the journey. So for now, we are going to spend our time worshiping the giver and dwelling on the gift that we have been given. We're going to move into a time of communion. What is communion? Communion is the sharing of God's body and blood to recognize the gift that we have been given. To partake in communion does not guarantee you. You acting in communion is not something you cannot attain the salvation that has been given to you. You may not gain glory for yourselves. It is only something that is given to you. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins, giving up his life so that you might live, is the most beautiful gift we can ever experience. We take of the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, to be reminded of the gift, but not just that, to be reminded of, to, be, to, to partake in the gift of life that has been offered to us to experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. We do this together. We do this in a community to be reminded that that salvation is not a, a one-time unique thing, but that we are brought into a community, all affected by the same thing. Here's how we're going to do this now. We're a little bit different today, so we're going to try and figure this out as best we can. Worship, I'm going to invite the worship team up, and they're going to sing, uh, we're going to play a song. I invite you to stay seated this time. Uh, some of our men will come up, grab some trays, and serve you where you are. At the end of that song, we will we'll read some scripture, we'll take the elements together, and then we'll close with another song. Does that sound good? You got that? We're going to try it out. Father, we just thank you for all of the gifts that you have given us in this world. It, it's haunting to, to, to realize the ways in which we have taken your good gifts and we have skewed them to make more of ourselves than we ought. That we ultimately pursue dying by living. 
Yet what you are asking us to do is to hand them off. To let go of those things as, as lasting. To let go of those things as saving. To recover our humanity in you and not in those things that we may once again enjoy your good gifts again. So Father, I, I ask that as we come to communion that we would enter a time of reflection to look inward at ourselves and see the areas where we have held on for ourselves, where we have used your good gifts for our own gain. As we come and we take the only gift that can provide us peace, we ask that our reflection, in our reflection, we would come to the end of ourselves to find you as joy and peace and wholeness. So, Father, we just ask that now would be a time where we, where you would just reveal to us those things. We thank you for the opportunity to dwell together. And we ask that your spirit would inspire us, inform us, illuminate our very beings. Would we be overwhelmed by the goodness of who you are? I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.